0: Open God's holy word to the second of Peter's letters, Second Peter, chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on 1 through the first part of verse 10. I'll be reading chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. "'Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. "'Whereas the angels, though greater in might and power, "'do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. "'But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, "'born to be caught and destroyed, "'blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, "'will also be destroyed in their destruction, "'suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing.' They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father. Have mercy on your church and what has been tolerated within. Grant grace that she would be purified, that the false would be removed, that those who have arose within would be Notably cast out and disowned. Father, guard us. Help us to recognize false teachers because of a love for the truth and Christ and souls. In the name of Jesus we ask this now. Amen. In this text, Peter unleashes not on false teaching, but on false teachers. One commentator aptly captures the tone of the text, writing, Refuting is not quite the word for Peter's language. Pummeling, denouncing, castigating, condemning, attacking, and assaulting are more accurate descriptions of what Peter does to his opponents. He offers a few arguments in response to false teaching in chapter 3, but chapter 2 is mainly occupied not with refutation, but denunciation of the most severe sort. You remember that we learned in one fourteen that Peter is writing this letter near his death, but Old age has not cooled this apostle any. He could still grow fiery hot, but it's a beautiful thing to see that at this point, it's not not that uncontrolled flame, it's a sanctified flame. You're not seeing this potentially dangerous wildfire that could erupt. You're seeing a controlled blowtorch remove what is necessary. This is the most extended and intense treatment of false teachers in the New Testament, and it is blessedly brutal. But how far are we from using any such language today concerning false teachers? Something is seriously wrong if you think this kind of language unloving or unchristian. And that so many, I think, would think so. If, if Peter's name wasn't on this and, and just a, a pastor spoke this way before his congregation, that so many th- would think it unchristian just shows how unchristian the church has become. Consider how incapable the contemporary church is at large of even identifying false teachers and understanding the danger they pose. R.C. Sproul well-diagnosed the epidemic, saying, we are living in perhaps the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Christendom. Not anti-academic or anti-scientific, but anti-mind. I doubt if there has ever been a time in church history when professing Christians have been less concerned about doctrine than they are in our day. We hear almost daily that doctrine does not matter. That Christianity is a relationship, not a creed. There's not simply indifference towards doctrine, but outright hostility, which is exceedingly dangerous and lamentable. We cannot do even a cursory reading of the word of God without seeing the enormous emphasis accorded to doctrine and that unsound doctrine and false teaching are not merely errors in abstraction, but profoundly destructive to the life of the people of God. We cannot identify the false because we don't know the true, nor do we care And not only do we have this kind of animosity towards doctrine, but there's this indifference towards church history as well. How few saints, having long been in church, could tell you anything about heresies such as Arianism, Pelagianism, Unitarianism? The church has fought heresy, condemned it, crafted creeds and confessions in response to outs them and we pay them no heed. And thus it is that these heresies are allowed to crop up again and again unnoticed, rebranded and we're none the wiser for it. If we will not learn from history, we must be prepared to be one of her lessons. We see in our text that false teachers will rise. False teachers will fall. And we must know this and we must recognize them lest we share in their destruction. Now, the first thing to note about these false teachers in our text is the contrast that they form with the true, both in the past and in the present. But false prophets arose among the people. There's the past, just as there will be. False teachers among you, the present, this contrast, but also, Peter had been speaking of himself as an apostle and what he testifies to, what he has witnessed, the glory of Christ. And he went on to speak of the prophets of old, and now there is this contrast, but as there were these prophets of old, false teachers also arose. And as now you have this apostle speaking and teaching, so also now false teachers will arise. The way you begin to get a grip on what the false is is by understanding the true. Peter witnessed Christ and he testifies of Christ and because of the advent of Christ, the prophetic word is now more fully confirmed, 119, and thus we do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place, knowing that this word, this prophetic word, wasn't produced, it, it, it wasn't a result of the prophets' own interpretation of their own thinking, but they were carried along by the Spirit. And with the true prophets of old, they were carried along by the Spirit. There were those who were clearly not, these false prophets. God told Israel this would be so. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses instructed them, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... There's another place in Deuteronomy where he speaks of a prophet tells you something and it doesn't happen. You kill him. This one tells you something and it does happen. But he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for Yahweh your God is testing you. Note this, that false teachers arise and God ordains it for a reason. And the church in the United States has largely failed this test. He's testing you to know whether you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, God did not put this in his law just because he thought it a theoretical possibility. He is Lord, and he does this to test. Further, Satan always has his counterfeits. He not only sows tares among the wheat, he sows wolves among the shepherds. Speaking in reference to counterfeit experiences as they arose during the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards wrote, "...it may be observed that the more excellent a thing is, the more will be the counterfeits of it. Thus there are many more counterfeits of silver and gold than of iron and copper. There are many false diamonds and rubies, but who goes about to counterfeit common stones?" There are these counterfeits, but whereas these true prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit, Ezekiel tells us that the false prophets, they do give their own interpretation. They speak from their own hearts. They speak according to their own spirit. Ezekiel 13, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. And thus, just as we should be earnest to give heed to the prophets whose word has been more fully confirmed, we should be diligent to give no ear to false prophets. Now these false prophets arose then, you see, among the people. Just so now they will arise among us. The great threat to the church in terms of false teaching comes not from without, but from within. While some do defect from the church for false religion, be it Islam. Hinduism, New Age, something of that sort. Far greater are the casualties due to false teachers within the fellowship. (coughs) Arius, who denied the deity of Christ, was homegrown by the church. Pelagius, who denied the depravity of man, And thus the graciousness of salvation and the necessity of Christ arose from within the church. Charles Finney, the celebrated revivalist who I am astonished so often at evangelicals that will sing his praise because he was successful, Though he denies justification by faith alone and taught perfectionism, he was a product of the church. Rob Bell, who denies hell and the iner- inerrancy of the scriptures, arose within the church and how entrenched these men are can be seen in this phrase even denying the master who bought them now those words produce no tension for the armenian and thus they failed to capture the tension that that phrase is meant to establish in this text denying the master who bought them. For the Armenian, Christ died for all. He bought all. He purchased all. And so there's no tension there. But the very point of saying that phrase is, it's a shock. They even deny the master who bought them. No, the Arminian has an altogether different problem with this text. It has those that Jesus bought being eternally destroyed. The Arminian says that Jesus died for all, paying the sins for all, and yet, though he has done this, they suffer in hell if they do not believe. John Owen captured the dilemma that's in this well. God imposed his wrath due unto... And Christ underwent the pains of hell for either one, all the sins of all men, or all the sins of some men, or some sins of all men. If the last, some sins of all men, then all men have some sins to answer for, and so shall no man be saved. For if God enter into judgment with us, though it were With all mankind for one sin, no flesh should be justified in the sight. If the second, that is it which we affirm, that Christ in their stead and room suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the world. If the first, why then are not all freed from the punishment of all their sins? You will say because of their unbelief. They will not believe. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment, do it or not? If so, why then must that hinder them more than their other sins for which He died from partaking of the fruit of His death? If He did not... Then did he not die for all their sins? Let them choose which part they will. The Armenian has people that Jesus bought suffering in hell. What does this say about the sense of the Father's justice? Has that sin been paid for or not? Why is he exacting double jeopardy? What does it say about the efficacy and power of Christ's atonement if those for which he died and purchased to the Father Still go to hell. Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He bought many, he purchased those given to him by the Father. Jesus died to redeem his church, the elect. But then we come, now you're seeing the tension, are you not? How do these false teachers deny the master who bought them? Well, one counterintuitive way to deal with Bible difficulties is to look for another. Look for another of the same sort and see if you get any help there. This is not the only place we find such language in the Scripture. We go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26 through 30 and we read, if we go on sinning deliberately, this is language that's being brought in from the Old Testament. It means sin with a high hand. This is a kind of rejection of covenant altogether. It's a casting aside of God's covenant law that He gave His people. It's rejecting that in total. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. Make no mistake about it, the most severe and intense judgment of God will fall within what is the visible church." Here you have someone who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, how do we solve these texts? And I think there are many points we could go to to see the answer to this. But the one that really strikes me is this phrase that we might be prone to skip over in the Hebrews passage. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now again, this this law of Moses, the commandments, you remember, were kept in the covenant. They were the expression of the people's covenant commitment to God. And this person has cast it aside saying, I want no part of the covenant. That's the idea. And the execution by the people is meant to portray God's expression that they are out of the covenant and condemned. In other words, they're not Israel. You remember Paul said that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel? You see, just as within national Israel, these false, not true, false all the way down complete to the totality of who they are, they're not true, they're false. These false prophets arise within national Israel, but they are not part of true Israel. So within the visible church, the institution as we see it, These false teachers arise within, but they are not part of the invisible church, the true church as God sees it. And with that clarified, I think you can see the absurdity that Peter intends with this phrase. They deny the master who bought them, they deny the master. If they deny the master, they're not slaves. And if they're not slaves, they weren't purchased. It's a a statement of absurdity. They have the appearance. Now, again, these are things, these are sins that are committed within the church. Trampling underfoot the Son of God is something that can only be done by one who has enjoyed immense privileges. Here is one reason why, as I alluded to in our opening this morning, why it's important that you raise your children in the fear and discipline of the Lord is because the most gross and heinous sins are committed by children of the church who enjoy immense privileges in many ways and stomp them underfoot. And let us also remember with this that this is beyond us. Oh, let us parent with fear and prayers because... The objective is not to get them to obey the standard, as Wilson says, but to love the standard. Well, the reason these false teachers can arise from among us so deeply entrenched as to be one who claims to have been bought by Christ, the reason this can happen is because they bring these heresies in secretly, verse 1. False teachers are taught to slither by their true master. Speaking likewise, Paul informed the Corinthians, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Like their master, they ask crafty questions as a segue to their heresies. For example, consider that in 2005, whenever Rob Bell was still pastoring a church and his Numa videos were enjoying widespread popularity, in evangelical and orthodox churches. He could even, in his popular book, Velvet Elvis, argue that doctrines should be more like springs on a trampoline than bricks in a wall, such that if you remove a spring, you can still jump on the trampoline, but if you remove this brick, the whole wall falls down. He writes, What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry. And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. But what if as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at that time, the word virgin could mean several things. What if that spring was seriously questioned? Could a person keep jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? I affirm the historic Christian faith, which includes the virgin birth and the Trinity and the inspiration of the Bible and much more. I'm part of it and I want to pass it on to the next generation. I believe that God created everything and that Jesus is Lord and that God has plans to restore everything. But if the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine and rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Now, do you notice what he does by his crafty questions? He puts it in this form such that if your doctrinal structure falls apart because one doctrine is proved false, it wasn't that strong. He makes his trampoline look strong and he makes a wall look weak. So much for Paul's statement that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Contrary to Bell, you can come up to a brick wall and there are some bricks that aren't so significant that you can remove and the wall remain intact. But the point isn't to play theological Jenga and find out how many you can remove with the wall still remaining upright. You want to build the wall as strong as you possibly can. And be clear, Bell's objectives, false teacher's objectives, is not for us to have a proper, humble attitude about these more obscure doctrines. Bell is attacking the very cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. And yes, if he was not born of a virgin, then we are all damned and foolish to pretend otherwise. False teachers secretly smuggle in weapons of mass destruction. These are destructive heresies, and we're told that many follow their sensuality. Heretics have been and are extremely successful. Popularity does not authenticate. Majority vote means nothing here. Democracy does not determine doctrine. T.D. Jakes is from a oneness Pentecostal background. He denies the Trinity, teaching modalism. That it's not that we have three persons in one God, this mystery. But that these are like three different hats that one person wears. And yet, the potter's house where he labors attracts some 16,000 souls every weekend. Joyce Meyer brought in 95 million a year, according to Christianity Today, brings in that, this was in 2004, brings in 95 million a year for her television ministry. That's just the television ministry. And yet, despite being disqualified according to 1 Timothy 3, just on the most quick observation of what that text says, despite that and her theology having more in common with pagan new thought ideology than with the Bible, this is so. Jesus' culture is a popular band whose songs are prevalent in many churches. And few realize that they're based out of Redding, California, Bethel Church, which is the seedbed for the most bizarre of charismatic practices I have ever read of. For instance... Gold dust and feathers, angel feathers, I'm guessing from the dark atmosphere that the angels don't know how to make their way out unscathed and thus lose some feathers trying to get out. But gold dust and feathers are said to fall conveying healing and fresh revelation. Now, if you think that man is basically good, this will surprise you. It will come as a shock. But if you understand that we are depraved and wicked in Adam, this doesn't shock because you recognize that their sensuality, many follow their sensuality, their sensuality is our sensuality, save for the grace of God. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 tells us, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own Passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There are no completely innocent victims of false teachers. When we sin, we sin. So it's no shock that such false teachers have mass followings. Because of them, verse 2, the way of truth is blasphemed. Is this saying that they blaspheme or that they cause others to blaspheme? Is it saying something like whenever the world looks at Creflo Dollar or Kenneth Copeland and they do so with clearer eyes than many in the church and they ridicule, they mock, they belittle Christianity as a result of seeing their wickedness, that they blaspheme? Let's be clear, any ridicule of Copeland or Dollar, most all of it would be rightly deserved. And whenever they ridicule their religion, it's not Christianity that's being blasphemed. It's something blasphemous that's being ridiculed. So... I think that the answer is both. These false teachers both blaspheme and they cause those who follow them, not those who are looking from the outside in, but those who are going along in tow, cause them to blaspheme. In verse 10, Peter says that they blaspheme the glorious ones, the saints. Verse 12, he tells us that they blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. And next, Peter tells you a central motive that all false teachers have. I think this is true across the board. Why else would they do it? What is their real motive? Verse 3, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. It's not the apostles who cleverly devise myths. It's these false teachers who have false words and they're false all the way down. They want to exploit. They're false not only in regards to the validity of their claims but also as to their motives. the false teachers stand opposite of what a true shepherd is said to be in the previous letter, chapter 5 and verse 2, that the elders are to shepherd the flock of God not for shameful gain. Their intent is not to feed but to fleece. The false teachers will say what you want to get what they want. Instead of the truth freely offered... They peddle in lies for hire. And so we see the rise of false teachers. They arise from within the church. They rise in popularity. They rise in wealth. But be assured, however high they rise, their fall will be much further and harder. You cannot teach destructive heresies without destroying yourself. Verse 1. They bring upon themselves swift destruction. Heresy is a dirty bomb that one cannot handle without suffering the most severe radiation sickness themselves. The bomb of heresy might spread wide in its effects, but there is no doubt that the most destructive capacity of that bomb falls upon the false teacher themselves. Remember, James told us that Teachers will be judged with greater strictness. The sharpness of Peter's language here indicates that very strictness. Now you may agree, their destruction I believe is sure. And I believe it's sure to be great, but swift? And then picking up this theme in verse 3, Peter personifies their judgment saying it is not idle, it is not asleep, and then he gives three examples to explain this. the first in verse four concerns angels. I don't believe this a reference to all demons in particular uh, in in general, not all demons in general. I think this was referring to a specific sinning by specific angels and a specific judgment. I think these are the same spirits in prison that we mentioned in First Peter chapter five, uh, chapter 3 19 through 20 these, these spirits that are imprisoned because they formerly did not obey in the time of Noah Jude Jude six and seven mentions the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I think these are the same demons imprisoned, kept reserved They're, they've been judged with a judgment preserving them for a greater judgment. So you have these angels during the time of Noah that didn't keep their first estate. They didn't stay within their position of authority. They left their proper dwelling. They were disobedient and they were confined to change. And I only find one passage throughout the whole uh, Noahic account that gives any clue as to what this might include. It's vague. But it's the only help we have. Genesis 6, 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. Sons of God being used in other instances to refer to angels. And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So you have these angels that sin in a grotesque and a perverse way, and the judgment of God falls upon them, confining them, and here's what to notice. There is no indication of a delay in this instance. And the judgment of God, when it fell, it fell swiftly. His judgment is not idle. It is not asleep. And when it falls, it falls swiftly. The second example of God's judgment is that of the flood. Now, how foolish are we as we read these passages? I know what happened with me. It falls swiftly. It's not idle. It's not asleep. How foolish of us to stumble at phrases like that when God has already judged the entire world once over the condemnation and destruction of the wicked is not idle and how quickly it falls when it falls the wrath of God may be long in coming but it is short in execution But this time, Peter also unfolds how in the midst of judgment, we also see salvation, the preservation of the righteous, Noah and his family. Salvation and judgment always go hand in hand. Whenever God pronounced the promise of our salvation and deliverance, it was in the judgment of the serpent. Whenever he delivers his people out of Egypt... It's by judgment falling upon them, on the Egyptians. Again and again throughout Israel's history, how often does their salvation come by the judgment of God's enemies? And whenever the critical and climactic act of our salvation occurred, it was because Christ was judged in our stead. And when we enter into the fullness of our salvation, it will be because His judgment falls upon the wicked. The third example is that of turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash, verse 6. And by doing so, we're told that he made an example of the fate of the wicked. And again, see how swift the judgment of God. Cities that were centuries in the building were minutes in being destroyed. And as with Noah, we have another example of God saving his people in the midst of this judgment. But this time the example, it it troubles us a bit. Lot? Righteous Lot. Indeed, there is evidence of Lot's righteousness. Whenever those two angelic visitors who were to destroy the city came into the town... Lot expressed hospitality to them. He went after them in a sort. You get the sense of a a soul that's hungry for righteousness and, and just the way he lurches after them and implores them to come into his home. But then you realize that it was just as much for the reason of fear of the behavior of the men of Sodom that he does this. At night they come and they demand the two men and the the context makes it clear that their intentions are perverse and wicked. And Lot, we're told, begged them not to behave so wickedly. Now the place where we're troubled is that then Lot offers his two virgin daughters in their stead. And we should be troubled. It should disgust us. But show me a saint in the scripture that it does not unfold and elaborate on them at any length. That you are not abhorred at at some point in their journey. This is not... A book of ethical heroes for us to imitate at its core. This is the story of the salvation of sinners in Christ. Who by grace are made to partake of the divine nature. So that there is a true righteousness. Not a veneer like the Pharisees with rot underneath. But a true righteousness that comes from the heart. There was a contrast between Lot and the wicked. And it was there by grace. And God preserved him. He was not perfect. But there was evidence that he was the Lord's. He was not like the wicked. And from these examples, Peter draws two conclusions. Verse 10. First, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You wonder when God will save His church from the enemies that corrupt her from within. You sense rightly the judgment and justice expressed in this text in Hebrews 10. You long for this, but rest assured, He will keep His people. When Elijah was under pressure, he cried out to God, I'm the only one left! And God assured him, I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Whenever the floodwaters poured down, there were only eight, but God kept them. whenever judgment fell on Sodom, you remember Abraham pleaded, if there are only ten righteous, don't destroy the city. There were not ten righteous, but God rescued His three. And though Babylon sacked Jerusalem, God preserved His people and promised a remnant would return. He knows how to keep His people, to rescue them from trials. But the emphasis of the text is on the second point. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. How does He keep the unrighteous under punishment? We could develop this along several lines. We could speak of common grace. We could speak of of the role of government in restraining. We could speak of the salt and light effects of the church. We could speak of the passive wrath of God. But the point of our text, the, the place where it puts the emphasis, is on these recurring judgments that come throughout history. Look at the history of this world and you will see that though the city of man flourishes, it is destroyed again and again and again. The history of this world is one pagan city arising only to be destroyed by another. As one poet philosopher put it, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. History is God judging one tower of Babel after another, coming down to look at the height of man's rebellion and squashing it like a bug. Man is like a child trying to fortify his sandcastle against sea and storm, but the sovereign tide always comes in. And make no mistake, the rhythm of judgment portends, foretells a tsunami that will wipe it all clean. And bring a new earth in its wake wherein righteousness dwells and the wicked will be no more. There's another if then statement that's implicit in this. It's Peter's very point. He's been dealing with the judgment of the wicked in general. The if then is this, if this is how God deals with the wicked in general, then what of those who play with holy things? You see that this is indeed a question he wants to bring to your mind because near the end of this chapter he says, it would have been better for them never to have known Peter's pummeling is meant to give you that sense. And however severe you might think his invective to be, it falls fall short in conveying the reality he wishes to express. But comfort is in this for the saints. Saints false teachers will rise but they will fall. Pay them no heed. Do not follow them. Do not doubt their end. They bring upon themselves swift destruction. Their condemnation is not asleep. Their destruction is not idle. In the end, the tares will be gathered with the wheat, but they will be separated, and they will be cast into the fire. Let's pray. Holy Father, Father, have mercy on your church and may the false be purged from among us. And may we be the bulwark and pillar of the truth, by your grace, that you intend for us to be. In the strong name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen.